0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, as we continue uh, navigating our way through 1 Corinthians and all of these vexing questions that uh, come up in 1 Corinthians 7, let's ask God for his help, his guidance today as we go to his word. And God, I do ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you, Jesus. So grateful that you call us not just to salvation, but to a life of meaningful service. And Lord, what a gift that we don't have to look elsewhere to serve you meaningfully. We can look right in our current lives, our current situations. You have such incredible redemptive purposes for us. Would you show those to us? Open our eyes, Jesus, to the place you have put us, to the people you have made us, and the unique opportunities um, that we have. Thank you, God, for giving us such a significant purpose in your kingdom. Pray you would guide us in your word now, in your name, amen. amen. So how do you find the perfect job? You ever wondered that? Well, good news this morning, I've got the answer. Because this week, I spent a lot of time on the internet. And I read a bunch of articles about how to find the perfect job. And now, to be clear, I'm not in the market. But perhaps you are. How do you find that perfect job? Well, according to the experts, here is what you look for. What is your dream job going to look like? It's going to be something you excel at. In fact, you love it so much that you don't mind the grunt work. You look forward to Mondays. T-G-I-M. This job's going to fit your personality type. It caters to your interests and skills. In fact, it's something you would do for free. You get to work with peers whom you respect and enjoy. You're part of an amazing team. And the job, amazingly, it fits your current life schedule and aligns with all of your current priorities while allowing you to make a meaningful contribution to the world. And this list goes on and on and on and on. Now, if that's your job, great. But here's what I find so interesting about all of these articles. People give all of this advice, but they seem to assume that that job exists. (laughs) That it's actually out there. And this is a very sort of American abundance mentality way of looking at life, right? I mean, of course, there are 11 million jobs open right now. One of them has to be the perfect match. There must be a perfect match, right? I I think that's what many Americans are looking for in every area of life, the perfect match. We do this with romantic relationships, don't we? Psychologists call it the soulmate syndrome. And you know what that is, right? It's there's this idea that there's the one. the, The one out there somewhere in the world who embodies everything that I want. And of course, that person actually Exists, right? Well, and how do I find them? Well, I take the most desirable traits that I find in every person and then combine them into one ideal archetypal person, right? So I really, man, this person is gorgeous. She is so attractive, and this person is hilarious. I love her sense of humor, and this person is so, I feel so safe and secure with him, and this person is so responsible, and this person is actually interesting in conversation, and and this person is actually godly, and then you just kind of combine them all, and you create like the Optimus Prime (laughs) candidate. And of course, right, they exist. They exist, I just need to find them, and I'm just swiping through dating apps trying to find them. Good luck, right? Good luck. There's this idea that since there's such an abundance of choice, the perfect choice must exist. And you can view buying a house that way, where you live that way, where your, kids send your, where your kids go to school, where you go to church. All of it is, there has to be this perfect match. Now, it's very easy to view God's calling on our lives that way as well. You just have to find the perfect match. So, how do I discover God's calling for my life? Well, it's got to be God's best for my life. What's God's best? Well, it's what I want most. So, I start with my desires, then I look at what the world offers, and wherever I find that match, that must be what God wants for me. Now, if that happens, great. Here's the problem with thinking that way as a Christian. That view of God's calling that the thing I most want and the thing that the world offers, that's what God calls me to. Here's the problem with that it assumes that in most cases, I need to change my circumstances to find God's call for my life. That if I really want to be doing what God calls me to doing, I need to change the conditions and circumstances of my life. That's interesting. Because in today's passage, Paul talks about calling. You want to know what you're called to? Well, Paul's going to tell you. He uses the word calling nine times in eight verses. This is a nice splash of cold water on the face, though, what he says. Here's his big point. He says it three times. First point, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Paul talks about two callings in the Christian life. There's the calling to new life in Christ when God calls us to follow him. That's our primary calling. But second, Paul talks about the life God calls us to, the the culture we're in, the social location. And, And here's Paul's operating principle. Whatever condition of life you were in, When God called you to be a Christian, remain in that condition. Remain there. How do I know that's Paul's operating principle? Well, he says it again in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then he says it again in verse 24. Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him, let her remain there with God. Remain as you are with God. You see the point? You think that's Paul's big point? Probably? Yeah, I think it is. That's the big point in the passage. That's the big point in 1 Corinthians 7. That's Paul's general wisdom principle for life. Remain in the condition you were when you became a believer. And you see how he applies this immediately before in chapter 7, right? He says, if you're unmarried, I think you should probably stay unmarried. If you are married to a Christian, stay in the marriage. If you're in a mixed marriage, stay in the marriage. And then later, when he talks about unmarrieds again, he's going to say, I think there's benefits to staying unmarried. You see the principle? This is Paul's general operating principle, not just for the Corinthians, but he says in verse 17, to all churches. Now, that's what Paul says. What does he mean? What does he mean? How do I discover God's call for my life? Don't do anything. Don't change anything. That sounds pretty uninspiring, doesn't it? That would make this an easy sermon to preach. Let's close in prayer, right? Keep on going. Let's close. That's not Paul's point. Paul is not telling us to settle for our current version of life. He is calling us to reimagine our current lives in light of the gospel. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning. What if following God's call for my life isn't fundamentally about changing my circumstances? What if following God's call is about reimagining my circumstances in light of the gospel? What if there are things God has already called me to do based on who I am and where I am And there are opportunities that only I can fulfill, and that is the way I should look at God's calling on my life rather than constantly looking for something else somewhere else. That's the question, and that will change the way you look at calling. That's what Paul wants us to do. You know, and as we've been working our way through this book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen that this is an issue that the people of Corinth would have struggled with. Because we've seen this city of Corinth was a very socially status-conscious place. They really cared about being seen as someone who makes it. And it was an upwardly mobile place. So this is a place you could make it. You could start at the bottom, and and you could get to the top, and you could work your way up. And the problem for these Christians is that they were thinking more like Corinthians than like Jesus. And, And they just began to assume that part of what it means to follow Jesus, I have this improved spiritual status. Well, what comes with that? It must be improved Social status. To be a really spiritual blessed Christian means God's going to give me health, and God's going to give me wealth, and he's going to give me honor, and he's going to give me status and influence, and that's all a package of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, if you think that's what it means to follow Jesus and be blessed by God, you're always going to be looking for what? More. Something better. And then if I'm really blessed, I just have to get up the next rung of the ladder. And Paul says no. He says, look at your current state. Look at what God is already doing. Maybe God is not calling you to leave everything you're doing for something better. Maybe he has something better where you're currently at. That's a radical idea. That that following God is not necessarily about leaving your current life, but reimagining your current life and seeing the divine opportunities you have. That's our starting point as Christians for thinking about calling. Doesn't mean it's always wrong to make a change in life. But before you make a change, ask yourself, well, maybe there's something unique about where I already am. Two questions I think we could ask based on this passage. First, how has God made me? Second, where has God placed me? How has God made me? Where has God placed me? This first question, where has God, how has God made me? Uh, Here's an important question to ask as, as, as believers what is my ethnic and cultural heritage? What are things that are just unique to me because of the family I was born in, the culture I was raised in? And and do those give me unique gospel opportunities that other people don't have? See, the temptation for the Corinthians is they thought that maybe by changing their cultural status, they could improve their spiritual status. What do I mean? Well, let's look at what Paul says. Uh, He he gives a very irrelevant example to us, but I promise it'll get relevant, okay? He restates the principle, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches, remain as you are. And then now he applies it to this issue of culture. Was anyone at the time of his call when he became a Christian already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. And now I know what you're asking. Why on earth would anyone be tempted to do either of these things? And that's a good question, isn't it? Uh, Apparently, there were Gentiles, non-Jews, who wanted to be circumcised, which is the Jewish marker of religious identity. That meant you were in the people of God. And then there were Jews who wanted to be uncircumcised. Don't ask me how that works. (laughs) Apparently there was a way. Why would they care about this? Well, what's going on? You know, the first big theological debate in the early church revolved around circumcision. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the physical sign of God's people. It's what marked you off visibly, physically as God's people to the world. And so a big controversy in the early church was this. You have non-Jews, Gentiles, come into faith in Jesus. And then this question arises, well, do they need to be circumcised too to be marked off as the people of God? Some Christians said, yes, absolutely. In fact, not only do they need to be circumcised, they need to keep the whole law of Moses because that's what it means to be a follower of Israel's God. Other Christians said, no. It said, faith and faith alone is what marks people off as the people of God. Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and become Jews to be saved. People are saved and marked off as God's people by faith and faith alone. And obviously that position is the one that won, the one that was most consistently biblical because what the early church saw is that circumcision was a temporary sign. That, that picture of circumcision, it was a picture of being cut off from sin, being separated for God, but it pointed to this need that every person had, which was to be cut off from the dominating power of sin, to have a heart that was circumcised, set apart for God. And what did Jesus bring about? That's circumcision of the heart, right? So when we believe in him, our hearts are set apart for him. We don't need the preview of coming attractions anymore. That was a sign pointing forward. That's the religious debate that went on. I don't think that this passage is talking about that. Because notice, there's a temptation to be circumcised, and a temptation to be uncircumcised. What are we talking about here? I think that these very status-conscious Corinthians thought that somehow they could be a higher status, either by becoming culturally Jewish, or becoming culturally Gentile. I think that's the big temptation for these Christians in this passage. Perhaps these Gentile Christians are thinking, You know, the really spiritual people in the church are Jews, right? They started the church. Paul's a Jew. You know, I want to have that higher, more impressive spiritual status. I'm going to just act like a Jew too. And now from a Jewish perspective, they're thinking, man, I am now free in Christ. I'm free from the Mosaic law. I I belong to this religious sect of Judaism that's despised by the Gentile world. I'm hated. This is a Gentile business world. Acting like a Gentile is the way to get ahead. I'm just going to shed my cultural heritage completely to get ahead. And and since I'm free in Christ, I can do that. And in both cases, Paul says, no. Don't do it. Why? Because ultimately, your cultural status isn't your spiritual status. That's the point that he makes. Watch this. Why he goes on to say this. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what? Keeping the commandments of God. God isn't going to be more impressed if you take on this Gentile identity. God isn't going to be more impressed if you take on a Jewish identity. You are what you are. Neither of it commends you to God. Spiritually, you're equal, and the only thing that counts is keeping the commandments of God. What does that mean? Paul Paul interprets that last phrase for us. In Galatians 5, 6, he says something very similar, doesn't he? He says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only what? Faith working through love. What what matters to God is not that we try to reinvent our cultural identity to fit in with one culture or another. We are the culture we are. We have the ethnic heritage we have. All he cares about is a life of faith-fueled love and obedience to him. That's what counts. Does that make sense? Now, what does that mean for how we view our own cultural identity and heritage? I would say this. There are things about us, especially when we talk about a cultural heritage, all of us have a culture, right? And if you don't think you have a culture, guess what? That just means you're majority culture. And you don't realize that you have cultural preferences of all kinds. But all of us inherit a culture. God creates diverse ethnicities, diverse cultures, and all of us have to go through a process of Christians as this. There are things from my culture that I receive gratefully, that are gifts from God, There are things from my culture I have to reject because they're not of God. There are things from my culture I need to redeem as things that can be redeemed for the purposes of God. And yet, regardless, I'm still going to have the culture I have, and that's just a part of God's design. And that's fine. So you have to ask, what unique opportunities do I have because of that? The reality is this. The way we will reach the Bay Area is not by every person in here bringing someone into a Sunday service and me preaching the gospel to them, okay? There are people because of my cultural upbringing that I'm uniquely gifted to reach and people I'd be terrible at reaching, particularly people who don't speak English, right? There are all sorts of people God has uniquely made you to influence that I cannot influence, what is unique about the position God has already given you? You know, I didn't realize I had a culture until I got outside of California. Then I realized I had a culture. Because I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm a Bay Area native, but I always kind of despised it when people would call me a Bay Area native. I'm like, I'm not like the people here. I'm different than the people here. I'm unique. And then, and then, I, and then I went to other parts of the country, and I went, oh, no, I'm a Bay Area through and through, Right? And I remember, I was in Texas this year, and someone's like, like uh, I what we were talking about. They were like, Jeff, you complain about food and the quality of food more than anyone I know. You're such a Californian, they said. You're such a Bay Area. And I was like, no, I'm not, as I argue about the seasonality of avocados and why light roast coffee is objectively the best kind of coffee. And I'm like, no, I am not a Bay Area native. And I finally had to realize, yes, I am. There are lots of things about me culturally that are just the way they are, and that's fine. But you know what I've had to learn? That gives me an ability to reach people that other people can't reach. It's one of my biggest reasons for staying in the Bay. Because you know what? Not People probably aren't going to come replace me if I leave. It's a lot less likely. In fact, you know the number one hardest place in the country to place a pastor? If you're going to do a search? Right here. Right here. Okay, if I pastored in Texas and left, another guy who looks a lot like me is coming. If I left here, there aren't a lot of me's who want to come here who are native to the culture. That is just as true for you. What are the places that only you can reach? Where are the relationships where you think, you know what, if I wasn't at a seat at that table, I wasn't there, it's very unlikely that another Jesus follower would be there too. That's where you need to, That's your influence. That's your place. You have to find out that place where you are uniquely gifted to reach and your place is not my place. Does that make sense? That's cultural calling. How has God made me? He's made me unique. Embrace those things and say God has given me opportunities and advantages there, okay? And this relates. Next question, where has God placed me? Where has God placed me? What is my career? What is my vocation? Now, now here's one of the challenges of living in America is it feels like we can always upgrade our job, isn't it? Always. Indefinitely. The problem with that is often we can miss the kingdom opportunities in our current place because we're always looking for the next best thing. Let's look at how Paul talks to people who are in a very difficult situation with where God has placed them and his counsel. It's pretty interesting what he says here. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called, do not be concerned about it. Now, the minute Paul starts talking about bondservants, slaves, we need to press pause for a minute because we don't come to that word without being profoundly shaped by our own history, right? As a country. So what is Paul saying here? Because when we hear slave, I immediately think about the atrocities of the transatlantic slave trade and America's history of stealing people, predominantly from Africa, and stealing people is something the Bible condemns again and again and again, and the forcible bondage and the practice that that Scripture condemns. So, So to understand and contextualize what Paul is saying here, the first question to ask is this, who is Paul talking about? And it's important to answer that question because slavery was terrible in the ancient world, but we can't just assume that Paul's advice to slaves and slave masters in the 19th century would have been equivalent to what he's saying here. Paul is writing as a marginalized person with no political power to a world where a third to half of people were slaves. Uh, Slaves... In Paul's day in Corinth, they were not distinguishable by race, gender, class, or culture. They weren't homogenous in any way. Many slaves were highly educated. Some served in positions of considerable social influence and power. Uh, Some slaves held authority over free people. Slaves were not always at the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid. In fact, being an impoverished free person was generally the worst place to be in, not a slave. People occasionally sold themselves into slavery to receive basic sustenance. Many slaves were freed by the age of 30. Slaves often became Roman citizens. Um, slaves could ascend the social ladder sometimes. The Roman poet Horace was a slave. The governor Felix, who was mentioned in Acts 24, had been a slave. And so, because slaves were so ubiquitous and existed at almost every different level of class, there wasn't a class consciousness among slaves. And now I make these points to say this. When reading the New Testament, it's very important not to just read back our assumptions about one culture and put them in the next. Does that make sense? That's why A.T. Lincoln says modern readers of the Bible need to free themselves from a number of assumptions about first century slavery, including the assumptions that there was a wide separation between the status of slave and freed person, and that all who were enslaved were trying to free themselves. There was a broad continuum of statuses, of social positions... Uh, between slave and free in both Roman and Greek society. Now, having said that, you shouldn't get the impression that slavery was great in the Roman world. It was not. It was really bad. And oftentimes, slaves were at the bottom of the social ladder. So what does Paul say to them? Here's what's interesting. What's his concern among slaves? What's the concern he's addressing? Paul says this. Hey, if you're a slave, don't be concerned about it. (laughs) Really, Paul? Like, that sounds like a harsh thing to say. Is Paul saying a harsh thing? Actually, he's saying a very loving thing. What shouldn't they be concerned about? Uh, Esau Macaulay has a helpful point. He's a New Testament scholar. What's the concern if you're a slave who comes to Christ? Here's the concern. Is my social status a reflection of my spiritual status? That's the concern. Right, these are people who want to climb a social status ladder because they think it will improve their spiritual status. So if you're a slave, what question are you going to ask? Gosh, if I'm this low in society, does God really love me? Does God care about me at all? How does God see me? And Paul says, don't think that your social status reflects your spiritual status. That's what it means. That's what you should not be concerned about. That's why Paul goes on to say right after this, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a what? Freedman in the Lord. In Jesus' eyes, you're free. You don't belong to any human being. Likewise, he who was free when he called is what? A bondservant of Jesus, a slave of Jesus. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves, bondservants of men. What's he saying? He's destroying this social distinction within the church. He's saying to all of you who are already free, do you know how you should look at the slaves? They're already free in Christ. They don't belong to anyone except to Jesus. And you who are free, do you know how you should look at yourselves? Well, you've been bought with a price by Jesus, so you are slaves of him. So actually, you're identical. There's no difference between you. And you serve a master in heaven who became a slave to save you. So do you see how this radically reinverts all of their social categories of who matters and who doesn't and status? It destroys them. Don't be slaves of people. What does that mean? Don't think that this person actually has ultimate authority over you. They don't. Jesus does. And so he reinvents the whole way of looking at status in the Greco-Roman world. And here's what's interesting about the New Testament. It never tries to overturn slavery, but it just plants these seeds and assumptions that are like a time bomb to blow up slavery. (laughs) Because if you believe what Paul is saying here, you'll go, oh wait, why would we have slavery if we're all equal? That there isn't a status of people that we can consign as inferior in this way. Now here's what's interesting is Paul's exhortation to slaves based on this because it's different to everywhere else. What makes his counsel unique? What does he say in verse 21? But if you can gain your freedom, do what? Avail yourself of the opportunity. Now, isn't that interesting in light of 1 Corinthians 7? Because in 1 Corinthians 7, what's Paul's big point? Remain as you are, right? Remain as you are. (laughs) To married people, don't get divorced. (laughs) To unmarried people, you should stay single. If you're a Gentile, just stay a Gentile. Don't mess with that, all right? If you're a Jew, just stay a Jew. Don't change the position you are in. And then when he comes to slaves, he doesn't say, and if you're a slave, don't seek your freedom, does he? He says, do. Do you see the difference? Culture is something created in part by God. God designed there to be cultural diversity. There'll be cultural diversity in heaven. Read Revelation. God designed marriage as an institution, right? God did not design slavery. We were given dominion over creation, not over each other, right? So you can see the difference here in Paul's assumptions about this. And that was like a ticking time bomb that was going to undo slavery in his assumptions, which is why you see as early as the 3rd and 4th century, as as countries became Christianized, they began outlawing slavery, and other countries outlawed slavery. And in fact, sadly, colonization took Christian nations back in the wrong direction, where there had been a trend toward banning slavery, of reinstating it because of the economic incentives of it. So, that makes Paul's counsel unique, and that's just important to just get that contextualized for us when we hear this passage. Now, now praise God, none of us in this room are in that position. But what are the implications of what Paul is saying here for us, particularly if you find yourself in a lot in life, in a job in life, in a place where you go, I just don't like this. Here are three things to keep in mind, and then we're done. First, your social status is never a reflection of your spiritual status. Feel like you're working a menial job, feel like you're not making the ends meet. That is not a reflection of how God sees you. You are honored in Christ, you have dignity in Christ. So, climbing the social ladder will not commend you in God's sight. Here's the second thing regardless of your job right now, God has a redemptive purpose for you in that. That's so important. This passage was revolutionary because, you know, in the 15th century, when Martin Luther comes on the scene, people thought that the most spiritual thing to do is to not be married. The most spiritual thing to do is to leave secular work and go be a monk or a priest. But what is Paul saying here? That any position in life can be what? A calling from God. That revolutionizes the way you look at your job, doesn't it? Whatever job that is, that's your vocation from God for the day even if it's not the perfect job. So what opportunities is God uniquely giving you there? And for Christians, we always think of job as a way of making a contribution, not as a way of getting compensation. The reason God has us work is because other people need our goods and services, not because we need to make money. That's how you should view work. That's how you think I should view work. right? I mean, imagine if I came up here next Sunday and said, guys, um, there's a church down the street. I'm taking a job there. God, God called me. God's calling me to another ministry. And, and you say, Jeff, what, how do you know you're called? Guys, they're offering me $40,000 more dollars a year <laughs> to be a pastor there. Can you believe that? You're like, Jeff, I can't. You're going to abandon this church and leave these people you've invested in because they pay you more? And I say, Of course. I mean, that's why I'm a pastor, it's the money. I mean, you know what kind of tax breaks we get? They're incredible. Right? Do you know what it's like having a housing allowance? It's amazing. And the the job security, I mean, boy, you really have to screw up to be a a pastor, right? I'm going to keep this job, right? And I mean, who knows what pastors do all week, right? Do you know what I do? (laughs) Nobody knows. (laughs) It's a mystery. (laughs) Guys, I can't believe, how could you pass up $40,000? Now, should I view my job that way? No. Is my job a calling? Is your job a calling? You have to ask the question, not just where can I make the most money and have the easiest job, but where my gifts and skills can be uniquely leveraged in the kingdom. And guess what? The place you already are is where you're called to leverage them. And you do not glorify God by despising the position you're in right now, okay? There's nothing spiritual about that because your job is just as spiritual as mine, okay? Okay? Next implication is this. Is it wrong to seek to improve my condition? Of course not. Paul tells people to improve their condition here. But here's a danger in America. It's a different danger. We have to keep kingdom priorities in mind. Because people, especially if you're good at what you do, will constantly be dangling a carrot in you to make more money. Always. And so it can't just be about making more money. It's not just being driven by money. It's being drawn to God's kingdom purposes for what you could be doing. I have a friend, one of my best friends in the world, I so admire him for this because he uh, used to be in ministry, transitioned into to e-commerce, became a consultant. He's wildly successful without trying to be. He's just brilliant. And, and he took this job consulting, and he's, and he's just making so much more money than he's ever made in his life. Just astronomical, for my opinion, amount of money he's making. And, and you know, I knew this guy in college, and he was super dedicated to living a simplistic life. Very, very simple, right? He has creature comforts, but he's not a guy who's trying to climb a ladder. And he could now if he wanted to. And I asked him, I'm like, why would you go into consultancy, right? Because he had a high-paying, executive-level job. And I'm like, why would you become a consultant, right? Other than it's going to pay you a lot more money. And he's like, I have young kids. I get to be at home. I want to disciple them, number one. Uh, Number two, I am going to work with people that other people cannot reach for Jesus. Period. These are people who will listen to me because I'm giving them advice. They're going to listen to me when I give them spiritual advice as well, and I'm going to have that opportunity. And he said, Third, I want to make more money so I can be more generous. And I'm like, Really? He's like, Yeah. Now, here's the thing. He actually is probably the most generous Christian I know, both in terms of total amount given and as a percentage of income. And you know what he hasn't done? He didn't go immediately buy the bigger house, still s- drives the lame car, he's always driven. A Prius. Sorry, Prius owners. Uh, You're not cool, but you're probably wealthy. You're driving that Prius. Uh, But that is exactly a kingdom view. And so for you, what are the unique kingdom opportunities? As you seek the next move, as you seek the next job, be drawn to the kingdom opportunities. Because let me tell you, if you chase the good life, without those, it won't be the good life. Okay. The good news is this, right? In a room like this, you know, there's just people who have been profoundly mistreated because of their skin color, because of their social status, because of their upbringing. And the gospel, the good news, is that God calls us and gives us a status that no one can take away. Even if you've been dishonored, he crowns you with honor and glory. Even if you've been condemned in the eyes of the world, he counts you righteous. Even if you've been cast out in Christ, you've been brought in. That's the truth. And when you sit and rest in that, then you can view all of life as a calling to serve and not to be served, and just to do what God tells you to do. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray we would just embrace the places you have assigned to us. Thank you, Lord, for the places you've already put us. Uh, God, your word says in Acts 17 that you've determined the time we'll live and the boundaries of our habitation. God, you made us who we are, where we are, when we are, for your purposes. And Lord, I pray that every person in this room would realize there is a unique kingdom assignment you've given them where they already are. Lord, and it's one that I cannot fulfill for them. Would you open their eyes to the skills you've given them, the culture you've placed them in, and uh, Lord, would they make the most of the opportunities they have. In your name, Jesus, amen.